As the coronavirus pandemic spread around the world, one common topic of concern has been religion. Restrictions on social gatherings have forced those who celebrate Easter, Passover, and Ramadan to find new ways to practice their faith. With many communities adopting social distancing guidelines, religious groups and churches have been forced to shut their doors to avoid becoming hotspots of contagion, as happened with the Shinjongi Church in South Korea. Of more than 9,000 cases, about half can be traced back to a religious cult in the country's fourth largest city. Since then, religious groups around the world have responded to the coronavirus pandemic in different ways. While many churches move weekly services online, others have simply refused to shut down. I won't get the virus because Jesus says I'm not. If you got God inside of you, you have nothing to worry about. While others have prayed to kill the virus. It's over! And the United States of America is healed and well again. Still other groups have offered ritual ablutions to protect followers from the disease, such as the spiritual vaccines offered by the Japanese religious group Happy Science. So today, I would like to create for you a spiritual vaccine with some religious power. Yet with media coverage of the spiritual vaccines verging on ridicule, it overlooked pressing questions about how religious groups in Japan are adapting to the pandemic and attempting to sustain contact with their followers even during times of social distancing. How has the coronavirus pandemic impacted religious groups in Japan? How have these groups adapted historical practices to contemporary conditions? And should we be cautious about how Japanese religious groups are covered in Western media? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on religious responses to COVID-19 in Japan, I talked with Dr. Levy McLaughlin, Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at North Carolina State University. Dr. McLaughlin recently published an article in the Asia-Pacific Journal Japan Focus entitled, Japanese Religious Responses to COVID-19, A Preliminary Report. I started by asking Dr. McLaughlin to tell us what inspired him to write this article at this time. Well, as you know, COVID-19, coronavirus, is a truly global pandemic. It's a pandemic in the truest sense. Every corner of the world is being affected, including Japan. I was inspired to write it based on a few things. I've been doing research over recent years on Japanese responses to calamity more generally. This really took off after the 311 disasters. So in March 11th, 2011, there was a compound uh, earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns that afflicted Northeast Japan, inspired the largest mobilization of religious activists since the Pacific War. Every imaginable type of institution, Buddhist, Shinto, Christian, so-called new religions, you name it, mobilizing thousands of people, millions of yens worth of donations, all kinds of material aid. And that wasn't getting a lot of attention. So I, I turned to trying to track that as best I could and then follow up with uh, extensive fieldwork in Japan. Through that, I realized that this is, of course, part of a much broader picture of religion as we know it, in interface with, with upheaval. I get into this a little bit in the article that I just published, but the truth is that the thing we call religion is really a product of people in Japan needing to interface with the divine, with the transhuman powers to intercede on behalf of people in order to, to mitigate against the, the dangers or the effects of, of horrible things like disease, so-called natural disasters and the like. In living memory, though, we have we have these sort of episteme shifting events in Japan 
the war is of course still there and it's but it's of course drifting now into historical memory more than living memory for most people in japan who are able to mobilize the most recent events that really give models for how best to respond to what we might call disaster are the 1995 earthquake in kobe january 17th 1995 there was a massive earthquake that devastated the kobe region and inspired a lot of mobilization. In fact, the, the, that anniversary is called the, the anniversary of volunteerism in Japan. It's called Hosei no Hi. And so people celebrate this as the birth of people in Japan going out and carrying out activities on behalf of others in a selfless way. And that was an important model creation moment for what happened in March 2011. And here we are again with another episteme-shifting calamity in the spring of 2020. But this time we're struck with a really different set of circumstances. COVID-19 demands that people stay home, quarantined. It basically, it changes ways in which institutions can respond. How do you aid people when you can't leave your house? How do you mobilize volunteers when they are in, under quarantine? How do you interface with a government that is waffling in terms of its response to the spread of a disease? Uh, and when there's inconsistency between the national level and the prefectural and the municipal levels in terms of how best to deal with a rise in the number of cases and straining hospital capacities and things like that. You mentioned that these religions are reacting to COVID-19 in a number of innovative ways. And I'll, I want to ask you about some of these innovative adaptations a little bit later. But one of the things you mentioned in your article was that as coronavirus has spread around Japan, one thing that it's exposed is a kind of lingering stigma for new religions in Japan. Can you explain a little bit more about what you meant by that? So the category religion sits uneasily in Japan. If you ask the average person in Japan do you have religious faith or do you believe in a religion? The overwhelming response will be no. And there are, there are numerous historical reasons for this. The same people will most likely engage in some kind of religious ritual at a Buddhist temple or a Shinto shrine at least several times a year. Many of them will have a Buddhist altar in their homes at which the family's ancestors are enshrined. Many of them will also have what's called a kamidana or a god shelf, a deity shelf in some part of their house, most likely the kitchen or somewhere like that. And there is a non-metaphorical understanding among many people who claim to be not religious that the spirit world is real, that the ancestors are still among us, that they intercede in real ways in people's lives, that they are part of our world, and things like that. So there are these paradoxical situations that persist. At the same time, also, you have powerful religious organizations that exert quite a lot of influence on things like electoral politics business, education, and other important spheres in life. Why is this the case? Well, the term for religion in Japanese, shukyo, was imported from English in the late 19th century. Before that, there was no umbrella category for it. So as Japan developed rapidly into a modern nation state, the category religion was included in, in that exercise. And so to be legitimate in the international order, you had to have this thing called religion as part of your makeup as, as a modern nation. And as part of that 
construction process, religion had to have its opposites in order for legitimacy to be understood, for orthodoxy to be defined. And the opposites have taken on various guises over the decades. Things like false religions, cults, these kinds of labels, which are, are, are well known to many people, you know. And so there is this vocabulary that is now available broadly, where you can say, no, that's not real religion. This is true religion, and that's fake, and things like that. And so organizations that attract people who are, are socially marginalized or engage in activities that are considered to be aggressive, things like heavy-duty proselytizing, engaging in politics, and therefore violating this sacrosanct ideal of a division between religion and government, anything like that is liable to shunt a group into the negative side of the, of the equation. And so you see these groups that are now somewhat innocently labeled new religions, often bearing that stigma of the, the opposite to what should be true, orthodox, real religion. And so when COVID-19 started spreading through Japan, once again, that incipient prejudice against these negatively defined groups started to emerge very early, actually, even before the Japanese government got its act together, when, when the national government and the Tokyo government were waffling about canceling the Tokyo 2020 Summer Games, the Olympics, the religions were looking around the world and seeing the negative repercussions that were evident for so-called new religions, cults, etc., that were accused of being clusters for coronavirus. And so large groups like Soka Gakkai, Reiyukai, a bunch of other digital Kosekai closed their headquarters, told their adherents to cancel all in-person activities, and really shut things down. In the meantime, so-called traditional groups, groups that enjoy the sort of reassuring status as tradition rather than the scary, untrustworthy religion type thing, were carrying on their activities pretty much as normal. And it's only much, much later that most of the so-called traditional groups started to cohere with national requests to limit in-person gatherings. Speaking of some of these kind of sensationalized views of religions in response to coronavirus, I'm sure you saw this New York Times piece talking about kofuku no kagaku, or happy science, as it's called in English, and how this religion could cure COVID-19 with spiritual vaccines, as the New York Times said. Can you tell us a little bit more about this happy science? What were they talking about with these spiritual vaccines? And in general, what was your reaction to this New York Times piece? The New York Times has been one of the most reliable sources for clickbait types of stories that, that mobilize, you know, popular tropes that reinforce prejudice rather than educate the public. So that article in particular did two things that I've grown really tired of personally, but one of them is the scary cult image, right? There's a kind of dog whistly aspect to it. If it comes from Asia, it's particularly exotic and alluring and, and somehow scarier. And the other aspect of the article was those quirky Japanese. There's this kind of endless type of story that's produced by mainstream media and by all kinds of bloggy sorts of things, which reduces people to memes and essentially orientalizes uh, images of Japan and focusing on the quirky, the odd, the, the cute in a very patronizing way that essentially is tasked as a means of assuring the reader of their own normalcy. You know, I might think that I'm a little insecure about my life, but look at those wacky people over there. And therefore I can just sort of reassure myself that, oh, I'm, you know, maybe I'm not so strange. The New York Times coverage of Japan, if you look through a lot of it, it's just endless. 
this stands in as Japanese religious responses to COVID-19. Okay, so we can back back that up a little bit and say, what what is happy science offering? They're offering a ritual reaction to epidemic. And the truth is that this is a very conservative move. This is a very traditional offering on the part of this organization. And in fact, every single religious organization in Japan that you care to name is doing exactly the same thing. Traditional groups or new religions or any other organization you, you want to look at. And that this has been the case for many centuries. And so one of the things I get into in the article is a, a bit of a genealogy of that ritual reaction to epidemic. And so there are lots of prominent examples of this. One of the big events every year in terms of ritual in Japan is a, a big festival in Kyoto called the Gion Matsuri or the Gion Festival. Gion is an area of Kyoto, which was the imperial capital for many centuries. And there was a festival that began in the year 869, 869 that was essentially a, a means of quelling the anger of spirits of deceased aristocrats who were spreading epidemic as a means of expressing their discontent with political disarray. And so that has blossomed over, over the years into a major, major event, which now attracts visitors from all over the world. Many, many thousands of people attend. It's a spectacular display of all kinds of massive historical carts and things. It's, it's a wonder, wonderful thing to attend. Absolutely rampacked full of people. And it has been canceled this year, perhaps ironically, paradoxically, because of fears of disease, you know. So you have this disease quelling event that has to be canceled because of contemporary understandings of viruses. But in the meantime, though, what's important to point out even about that event is that the actual rituals at the shrines are being conducted. And so while the big public side of things has, has to be canceled, the shrine priests at the Shinto shrines that are the center of this, for example, are carrying out rituals. And so it's easy, perhaps, for the press to point to these lurid new religious groups that do indeed make a spectacle of themselves in some cases, like, like happy science. But the fact is that all kinds of other so-called traditional organizations are carrying out rituals that promise essentially the same kind of delivery. The mitigation of disease, the acts of the kamis and the Buddha kamis are the deities of Japan and the Buddhas and all kinds of other uh, numinous powers to bring about a quick end to this pandemic. And you mentioned that this ritual practice, I mean, there's quite a long history of doing this, but you also describe in the article how these religious groups are also making some new adaptations. Well, we, don't, we are living in an era of unprecedented opportunities to connect remotely. Uh, religious activists themselves are, are doing their best to take advantage of this. And so, and that's actually how I carried out the research for the, for the article itself. Um, I was able to connect with people whom I've known now for a couple of decades via ethnographic engagement on the ground across Japan. And I was also, I want to give a shout out to my, my, my scholar colleagues, uh, Mark Rowe, Erica Buffelli, uh, Jessica Starling, and there were others as well who were kind enough to put me in touch with their precious contacts uh, across Japan, who were, who were very kind and responding to me via all kinds of electronic means. And so I was able to get some really uh, thoughtful 
messages and conversations and stuff with Buddhist priests, Shinto priests, activists in Soka Gakkai and uh, Shugendo, which is a mountain asceticism tradition, and a bunch of other things. And it's, it's a preliminary report, and I'm still hearing back from people. I'm hoping to follow up with more as, as you know, events uh, transpire in Japan. And so what these uh, folks were telling me was, yeah, ways in which they are seeking to uh, remain connected to parishioners via YouTube, Zoom, email, all kinds of different things like that. And there are multiple motivations for this. On the one hand, they, they of course, just re remain dedicated to their religious communities and the participants need to retain that connection. It's a, it's a vital aspect of their lives. The other, if you are, uh, especially for the professionals, that is to say the priests who run institutions, they are really suffering financially. They receive donations for their activities and they rely on those to maintain their own family livelihoods and their temples and shrines. There's a kind of a, a constant trope, not just in Japan, I think, but generally about religion that it's seen as kind of a, a scam on the part of many people as a way to sort of not pay taxes on on your activities and to basically make money off people's anxieties. The, the, the truth is though, the vast majority of the folks are involved are, are run very, very modest operations and what they do is very meaningful to everyone who's involved. And so they haven't been able to do things like visit parishioners' houses to carry out memorial rituals or hold events at shrines and temples, festivals and other kinds of rituals that would ordinarily be the way that they would make ends meet. And so they've had to go online as a stopgap to do their best to keep this kind of thing rolling. And that's been a real struggle. It's going to have a really big impact, especially on places where they were already struggling. And then following up on that is going to be a, a tough thing to do in all respects. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.